I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. Central banks are perhaps one of the most powerful levers in the financial system. But what does that mean in the context of climate finance, where central banks have historically been guided by their primary mandates, be that a price stability or a full employment objective? Now, to be clear, this shift is already well underway. Earlier this year, the Bank of England updated its mandate, quote, to reflect the importance of environmental sustainability and the transition to net zero, end quote. The ECB just released the methodology behind its upcoming climate stress test for banks. And even the language of the U.S. Fed has shifted over the last several years to now support a deeper understanding of the economic risks of climate change to the financial system. But for all this progress, there's still an incredibly fascinating and necessary discussion about how climate change fits into central bank mandates, what effects climate change may have on central bank policy space, and whether current climate economy models are fit for purpose. It's why I'm so excited to have Emmanuel Minch on the podcast. He's co-chair of the recent ECB Strategy Review occasional paper, Climate Change and Monetary Policy in the Euro Area. We talk about the intersection of climate change and monetary policy, what central banks are doing to integrate climate risk in their macroeconomic models, and why it's vital we continue to examine how climate change may impact the financial system. Emmanuel is the head of research at Deutsche Bundesbank and professor of economics at Goethe University Frankfurt. Prior to joining the Bundesbank, Emmanuel was a research officer at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. His research focuses on the intersection of macroeconomics and finance and has been published in the Journal of Finance, the Journal of Financial Economics, the Review of Financial Studies, and the Journal of Monetary Economics, among others. Welcome to the podcast, Emmanuel Munch. It's great to have you here and thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. It's great to be with you today. Great. That's good to hear. So Emmanuel, we have a lot to talk about, but I'd like to begin with some scene setting. Given your experience at the Bundesbank and your work with the ECB, what's the case for including climate change within central bank mandates? And how have you seen the support for this evolve even over the last several years? I'm thinking about, for instance, even the subtle shift in language from places like the US Fed. You know, central banks typically have pretty well-defined mandates that are given to them by law, by the lawmakers. Many central banks in developed economies are primarily required to deliver price stability. That's their primary mandate. The ECB is a good example for such a central bank. Its primary objective defined in the European treaties is to deliver price stability. The European treaties also say that the ECB, or rather the European system of central banks, shall support the general economic policies of the European Union, but without prejudice to the price stability objective. So there's a clear ranking in the mandates with the price stability being the primary mandate in the case of the ECB. Now, you mentioned the Fed, and like other central banks, the Fed, like other central banks, has a more prominently defined second mandate. The Federal Reserve Act, in fact, requires the Fed to balance the goal of price stability with that of full employment. 
Now, I'm not aware of any major central bank which has an explicit legal mandate to include climate change in its policy framework. But the Bank of England, since recently, may be a possible exception where in March of this year, 2021, Chancellor Sunak required the Bank of England to also support the transition to net zero by 2050. But even without explicitly mandating to address climate change or support the low carbon transition, most central banks recognize now that climate change and the policies addressing it will have a strong impact on the macroeconomic aggregates that they are required to stabilize, such as inflation and employment. And they also understand that climate change and the net zero transition will affect financial markets, which are key for the monetary transmission. And moreover, they will affect financial institutions which central banks often supervise, and the broader financial system for which they have a macroprudential mandate. So essentially, in all areas in which central banks are active, or all of these areas will be impacted by climate change and climate policies. At the same time, you know, central bankers often are careful not to get drawn into contentious policy debates, because this could potentially undermine central bank independence, which is very key for their ability to deliver on their mandates primary mandate of price stability, most importantly. And so I think this explains the rather cautious approach that we've seen by central banks communicating about climate change and what it may mean for their policies. And uh, some central banks in recent years have adjusted their stance with respect to those issues. And I think the Fed is, is one of them. But even though they often communicate carefully about climate change, I think in the background, many central banks have been very active trying to understand the implications of climate change for their work. You know, they have organized themselves, for example, in the network for the greening of the financial system, where they collaborate on a host of issues related to climate change and the broader financial system. That's a really good description of the primary objectives. Like you said, price stability in the case of the euro system and the ECB full employment from a US perspective. If you could pull back the curtain a little bit, I mean, how would you describe or characterize the allowance that political willingness within the euro system to more ambitiously integrate climate risk factors within those central bank mandates? To what degree has climate risk begun influencing, even in the abstract sense, that primary price stability mandate discussion, not just that secondary general economic policy mandate discussion? As I just mentioned, European treaties involve a secondary mandate for the euro system, which is to support the general economic policies of the union, but without prejudice to the primary stability mandate. So it's a subordinate secondary mandate. Some policymakers in the euro area interpret the secondary mandate as an obligation for the ECB to act on climate change. But others are rather, are rather skeptical of this stance. They argue that going down that route of, of actively pursuing climate policies would open the door for further politicization of monetary policy, which ultimately could put at risk the independence of the central bank and thus, again, undermine its ability to deliver on its primary price stability mandate. The euro system recently completed a strategic review of its monetary policy framework and uh, with it announced a climate action plan. The ECB governing council in announcing this climate action plan, I think, was very careful not to invoke the secondary mandate. And instead, it highlighted the importance of climate change for its monetary policy framework and its operations, primarily on the basis of climate related financial risks. So really via the primary objective. And so specifically, the euro system recognized that financial risks can emanate both from physical risks due to extreme weather events, 
but also from risks associated with the transition to a low-carbon emission economy, so transition risks. And both need to be taken into account when managing its own portfolios, but importantly also need to be taken into account by the institutions it supervises and by the broader financial system for which it has a macro-credential responsibility. I was going to ask, when it comes to this comprehensive action plan that you just spoke about, how do you think about designing measures that remain consistent with that price stability objective? You know, it's true that physical climate risks, such as extreme weather events, such as droughts, floods, storms, wildfires, that we typically think of when we think about climate change, you know, those are expected to materialize mainly at medium to longer horizons. So typically beyond the horizon that central banks focus on, who have a mandate to stabilize inflation, and they typically look at sort of the business cycle frequency. But, you know, there's also examples already now where extreme weather events affect price stability in Europe also. In 2018, we had an extremely hot and dry summer in Germany, where I live. This led to, you know, extremely low water levels at the River Rhine, which is a major freight route. And in turn, uh, this led to fuel shortages and spiking of fuel prices in Germany and some neighboring countries. So we have already seen and we are uh, continuing to see extreme weather winds that affect price stability even uh, now and today. More generally, there's research that shows that extreme weather events have an impact on inflation, but the direction of the impact is not always clear. It's not always positive or negative because most of these events have both a supply and a demand type effect uh, on the economy. And that makes it particularly difficult for central banks to respond to these shocks. I'd like to actually go back to the horizon problem that you mentioned, obviously alluding to the Mark Carney tragedy of the horizons. How do you see central banks reconciling short-term price stability horizons with that longer-term climate horizon? Central banks typically look out an economic cycle, while climate risk modeling requires, at the very least, a 30-year-plus outlook. In general, we expect these physical climate risks to only affect price stability in the medium to to longer run. But we already know now that unmitigated climate change will increase the frequency, the magnitude, and the persistence of climate-related shocks in the future. And that will potentially make it hard for central banks to deliver on their price stability mandate in the future. But extreme weather events are not the only risks to price stability uh, that emerge from climate change. Climate mitigation and adaptation policies also affect prices, even in the short run. You know, take Germany again as an example. This year, um, the government introduced a carbon tax of 25 euros per ton of uh, CO2 on certain fuels that are primarily used for transport and heating. And this tax is already contributing to the increase of fuel and heating prices, which are a current topic of discussion here in Germany. So we know that uh, even transition policies, transition risks affect um, price stability in the short run. And we also know that such taxes need to increase quite rapidly to achieve climate goals that were pledged by governments. So even in the near term, the climate transition risks uh, will have an impact on prices and thus implicitly affect central bank policies. And so I think it's not just a long a horizon phenomenon. It's really something that we need to deal with in the here and now. Yeah, it's such a fascinating point. I guess I'm wondering, how do you think about the potential conflict that addressing climate change may 
at first be inflationary. Uh, think about the need to move to newer, initially more expensive energy sources, and in particular, underinvest in older brown fossil fuel energy sources. Should central banks hike in those situations? Should they hike rates in response to that, despite the potential that it may unanchor inflation expectations? I think we're living through a really interesting example now where we've had a lot of capacity building in renewables. We've had significant, and this is one of the takeaways that I took away from COP26 last week, but five to eight years of underinvestment in fossil fuels, wellheads typically lose 6% productivity per annum. So you're talking about 30 plus percent at the very least to as much as 50% lower productivity from your traditional energy sources, which is to some degree kind of shaping the degree of price volatility that we're starting to see in energy markets over the last couple of months. Yeah, this is a very good question. And, and, and as you mentioned, this is one uh, question that's relevant right now in light of inflation rates that are quite a bit above um, the ECB's 2% target here, but that's also true in other currency areas and other economies. And as I just mentioned, these price increases are partially driven by carbon taxes, although here in, in Europe, the impact on the currently high inflation rates are, is, is of the carbon tax is relatively small. Other factors are, are likely uh, much more important. No, I, I won't give a recommendation as to what the ECB governing council should do right now. But let me say this. To assess the role of climate change or climate policies, uh, such as carbon taxes, for inflation dynamics and thus for monetary policy, it's, it's important to understand that the ECB, like most central banks, explicitly defines price stability for the medium term. Therefore, the governing council really can see through short-term temporary fluctuations in inflation as long as they don't lead to persistently higher inflation expectations, which themselves may, of course, then feed into higher future inflation. So to the extent that climate change and transition policies lead to persistently higher inflation rates, not just in some sectors, but across the board, and also feed into higher inflation expectations, central banks may need to react. But in principle, they can see through short-term temporary fluctuations in inflation that may partially be driven by, by transition policies or or weather, weather events. Th that makes sense. So, I mean, I guess the key word would be if it's persistent. And yes. I mean, what we're talking about is sort of inflationary pressures or phenomenons that are temporal, that are kind of phenomenons of capacity building and would not be persistent. I think that's right. So you really need to disentangle the, the temporary cyclical from the longer term trend factors in sort of understanding what the inflation dynamics are and then react to those primarily, which um, are deemed uh, to be more persistent longer term. One of the things I find really interesting are, even within the euro system, the individual kind of national reactions to climate change. So we've had the Banque de France announce earlier this year that they would exit coal and limit exposure to oil and gas in a shift to greener investments. Back in 2019, the Riksbank announced that they would no longer invest in assets from issuers with large carbon footprints, regardless of yields. And in fact, they then went on to divest from some bonds out of Australia and Canada. The ECB is, I remember last year as well, has sort of pointed to transitioning from brown to green bonds in a shift around its asset purchase program. Uh, you know, with so many different central banks within the Euro system acting not in concert, sort of in their own individual way, how do you think about the unintended consequences to financial stability of, of all these central banks de-risking in different manners? 
That's a very good question. First off, I mean, the ECB has announced um, transitioning uh, from brown to green bonds in its non-monetary policy portfolios. And as part of its action plan announced that it will look into how to potentially modify its asset purchase programs, the monetary asset purchase programs. Uh, with regards to climate change. And it, this definitely plans to take into account climate-related financial risks in its own portfolios. And as you rightly mentioned, other central banks have announced similar efforts or have even announced concrete steps to reduce carbon exposures of their portfolios, like uh, the Banque de France, the, the Riks Bank that you mentioned. And in principle, such actions may contribute to a reallocation and hence a repricing of climate-related risks. That's, of course, already underway in the marketplace. This uh, reallocation and repricing is not, not just driven by central banks. It's driven by investors understanding that climate risks are major risks that they need to be aware of and, and position themselves for. So central banks doing something similar may contribute to this reallocation and repricing, but, you know, these steps will be taken by central banks, will be taken little by little, and they will be implemented over the medium term. And I really don't have any doubt that they will be carefully designed and communicated to prevent a sharp and sudden repricing that could result in financial stability concerns. Central banks are really very careful communicators. And so I have no doubt that these announcements will be communicated carefully and these steps will be designed carefully so that no financial stability concerns arise. Is there a larger discussion within the euro system about how to harmonize actions like these? In the case of the non-monetary portfolios, there was a high-level task force in the euro system that basically brought together all euro area central banks, and they all have non-monetary portfolios, for example, to fund their pension plans for their employees, etc. And so there was harmonized, basically, approach discussed to deal with climate change in these non-monetary portfolios. And of course, the monetary policy operations are discussed and designed for the euro area as a whole. There's little, if any idiosyncratic or central bank specific components to these monetary policy operations. So those are, of course, harmonized by, by construction, if you will. I'd like to actually stay on this issue around green bonds. Green bonds are accounting for a increasingly meaningful portion of the ECB's portfolios. And, and to play devil's advocate for a second, is this some form of mission creep that diverges from market neutrality or would you say it's within its mandate to help create and, I guess, provide liquidity to the green bond market? No, I, I, I want to not comment in detail about asset purchase programs mm. um, that are currently conducted by the euro system. What I can say is that except for some restrictions given, for example, by uh, the individual central bank's capital keys or restrictions on credit ratings that we impose on ourselves and other considerations, uh, the euro system seeks to ensure that its purchases adhere to the principle of market neutrality. Now, what does that mean, market neutrality? It means that the ECB seeks to minimize the effect of its purchases on the relative prices of the securities it buys. And in practice, this mainly involves buying securities according to their shares in the bond market. Again, some restrictions imposed by capital key and other considerations, and of course, also applying due diligence criteria. How do you weigh the trade-offs, in particular around proposals for central bank action relating to green QE or green quantitative easing. I ask because I can't help but think of Eswar Prasad's argument in The Future of Money, his, his latest book. And again, admittedly, he's not talking about 
climate change and climate risk and, and allocation in that perspective. But he makes a point that a central bank should ideally stay out of areas in which the private sector can provide services satisfactorily and where competition can produce innovations and efficiency gains. You know, my personal opinion on proposals such as Green QE is that there's a number of downsides to this type of policy. You know, they're difficult to justify on the basis of the price stability objective because they risk a further politicization of, of central bank policies, which, as, as we discussed earlier, have clear implications for central bank independence. I also think that the likely effects of such programs on the prices of green versus brown bonds are rather small. And of course, any QE type program may need to be unwound when price stability considerations require the central bank to do so. So will by construction, if you will, be no permanent positive effect on emissions. And even worse, in certain situations, if the central bank really has to unwind such programs, there may even be potential negative effects. So in some, I'm I'm personally rather skeptical that explicitly green asset purchase programs represent an effective way for central banks to contribute to the fight against climate change. But other tools may be more effective. For example, requirements regarding climate disclosures on the issuers of financial assets for purchase programs, but also for eligibility as collateral in the standard monetary policy refinancing operations. I think such requirements will likely speed up the transition to a low carbon economy as they increase transparency of climate exposures. So I think this is a much more powerful tool that central banks have at their disposal. I'd like to change lanes a little bit and talk about the ECB's and the fact that they will be conducting a stress test on climate-related risks next year mm-hmm. in 2022, with banks expected to speak to how their balance sheets will evolve over a 30-year forward basis, reflecting the climate transition, and in particular, stranded asset risks. So it's a big ask. It's pretty ambitious. As they did post the global financial crisis, stress tests tend to provide a more systematic way of understanding the effects of the complex and interrelated exposure within the financial system. How do you see climate stress tests revealing a higher risk premium, let's say, in a manner that the markets may not yet have recognized or acknowledged? That's a very good question. You know, I'm not an expert on stress testing, but I think in a similar vein as as the first stress tests that were conducted by the Fed and other central banks in the wake of the great financial crisis, climate stress tests will require banks to more systematically think about the exposures they have on their balance sheets to the different types of climate risks, physical and, and transition. So I think the very first step in this process will be to improve the collection of available data on carbon exposures of the loans and the other assets that banks have on their balance sheets. So as a consequence, I think the primary goal of such stresses will be to help banks to fill the data gaps that they have. And by the way, not just banks have faced these data gaps. We, we do too as central banks, as supervisors, and, and many other institutions do, investors do. So filling data gaps, I think, is a, is a key component of these stress tests. In addition, I think stress tests should also involve a more systematic analytical assessment of climate risk exposures. And past experiences, such as the SCAP in the US, the first set of stress tests after the great financial crisis, I think these past stress test experiences have shown that such regulatory stress tests may induce strong improvements in banks' own internal risk management frameworks, which ultimately make them less prone to certain, and in this case, climate risks, and help stabilize the financial system in this really important structural transition that we're in right now. Your question on the risk premium, you know, whether such stress tests will give rise 
to a higher risk premium, I think is very difficult to tell at this point. Generally speaking, to the extent that such tests increase transparency about exposures, and if these exposures have previously been underappreciated by investors, then I wouldn't rule out some market reactions to these stress test results. Importantly, however, let me say that Andrea Enria, the head of the ECB supervisory arm, has, has recently said that the climate stress test results will not immediately trigger any changes in capital requirements for the stress-tested banks. So any potential market reaction would be driven by a reappraisal of climate risk exposures and not by regulatory requirements ensuing from those exposures. I'd like to touch on the fact that you co-chaired the recent ECB strategy review occasional paper. It's called occasional. It's in fact quite long. It's 200 <laughs> pages almost. Climate change and monetary policy in the euro area. It's a fascinating, fascinating piece. I'd love for you to talk about it. I've got a lot of questions, but maybe we start out by, could you characterize the findings and recommendations, I think, broadly? And, and to what degree does it ultimately, or does it try to rationalize central bank oversight of climate risk as financial risk? You know, the work stream uh, was intended to collect and summarize the current state of knowledge on climate change and its implication for monetary policy with a focus on the euro area. And us central bank economists, like um, actually most other mainstream economists, had sort of ignored the issue of climate change in, in our work. And so really, um, there's a lot of catching up to do by not only ESCB, ECB uh, economists, but by economists uh, more broadly around the globe and in and, and most central banks. And the starting point for our work was the recognition that climate change will, will really be a key driving force of the economic conditions that we will face and the future generations will face. And so, of course, these economic conditions will ultimately affect monetary policy in various different ways. And so what we did is to really, with a, a large team of 50, 60 experts from across the system, many of which only started to work on climate change recently. Some uh, have started to look into these issues already a few years ago. Together, we looked at the available academic literature and, and also our own internal analyses to discuss essentially the variety of different ways how climate change could affect monetary policy today and, and in the future. I don't want to summarize all findings here, but let me highlight a few. Climate change, clearly, we concluded, could affect the policy space that will be available to central banks in the future, as it could further reduce the natural real rate of interest that many refer to as R star. That's the rate at which saving and investment are in equilibrium in the long run, and or the, the supply and demand for funds are in equilibrium in the long run. And this equilibrium rate of interest could be reduced by climate change because funds might need to be diverted away from innovation and productive activities to, say, reconstruction after natural disasters or to adaptation and protection against future natural disasters. So climate change in that particular way will likely reduce the policy space available to central banks in the future. Now, another reason we discussed for why policy space could be lower in the future is that high uncertainty that may be implied by climate change and transition policies may actually go in hand in hand with an increased precautionary savings motive by households. And so this would also put downward pressure on, on this equilibrium rate of interest and, and hence reduce policy space available. There's a number of other potential sort of channels through which policy space could be affected by climate change. 
So I think there's really a variety of potential channels through which uh, climate change could downward pressure equilibrium rates of interest and enhance policy space for central banks. Demographic trends might be accelerated by, by climate change, for example, that could also put some pressure, downward pressure. But, you know, there's also potential positive effects of climate change for our star. For example, technological advances that are related to climate change abatement could have positive spillovers for broader productivity trends and hence put upward pressure on those equilibrium uh, interest rates. And so in some, what we concluded in the, in the Workstream report was that the net effect of climate change on policy space, on equilibrium real interest rates, is really unclear ex ante. depends uh, on all these different uh, channels. And it's very hard at this point to quantify how important each of those will be. But from what we know now, based on existing work, it's not unlikely that it will in some further compress equilibrium rates of interest, that climate change will further compress equilibrium rates of interest, and that this means that central banks may have less policy space available in the future to smooth inflation and the business side. You've talked about different policy transmission channels. Obviously, we've covered interest rates. I'm wondering if you could touch on credit, asset pricing, and expectations, I, I thought was interesting as well. Yes. So there's a number of traditional channels through which monetary policy affects uh, prices and, and the real economy. There's the classical interest rate channel. There's a credit channel of monetary policy. There's an asset price channel of monetary policy and expectations channel. All of these could potentially be affected by climate change. The interest rate channel, which is sort of the most natural that comes to mind when thinking about how uh, central bank policies affect inflation and real activity, the interest rate channel could be muted by climate change because, again, these increased precautionary savings that I mentioned triggered potentially by uncertainty arising from climate change and transition policies, they may reduce the interest rate sensitivity of consumption and investment. The credit channel might be affected negatively because climate change may affect negatively the balance sheets of households, firms, and as a result, banks. So banks may reduce lending and not respond as strongly to policy rate changes as they used to. So the credit channel of monetary policy might be hampered by climate change. We also discussed, and you mentioned asset markets, credit markets. I mean, climate change is likely reflected in higher risk premia in certain asset markets due to a heightened volatility of certain asset prices and exposures to new sources of undiversifiable risks. As new or newly understood, uh, I should say, sources of undiversifiable risks. So you mentioned stranded assets. So that's one such risk. So as a result, I think the asset price channel of monetary policy is very likely also to be affected. Now, how exactly and what ways, uh, how quantitatively important this effect will be? is really difficult to tell at this point because we're lacking data. But for sure, there's a variety of reasons why climate change might impact monetary policy transmission in the future and probably already does today to some extent. They don't all go in the same direction, but I think on balance, we concluded that monetary policy transmission is likely to be negatively affected by climate change and transition policies. So the life of central bankers, if you will, is unlikely to become any easier with climate change. Let's talk about some of the gaps that the ECB paper identifies. The first one is around this idea of climate economy modeling. How do you reconcile climate-specific models that represent the economy in oversimplified ways versus macroeconomic models used by central banks that generally do not include climate factors because of, as we talked about, the horizon problem? How do you consider physical and transition risks in the transition to a net zero economy? 
You know, this gap that you mentioned between the sort of traditional climate economy model and the monetary policy focused models that we use in central banks, this is a really important gap. And it's an important area for research at the intersection of economics, finance and, and climate science. You know, the workhorse model that climate economists use to compare the economic costs and, and benefits of climate policies, for example, carbon taxes, these type of models are called integrated assessment models, IAMs, and uh, they typically have a very simplistic economic structure. And so most of the transmission channels that have shown to be relevant in modern macroeconomic analysis, and, and some of which I mentioned just before, um, most of these transmission channels are missing from these models. They're already quite complicated in and of themselves. Now, central bank economists typically use their workforce macroeconomic models, so-called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. And they have these transmission channels built in, but they typically do not feature any climate-related variables or, or transmissions to climate or from climate to the economy. And so there's really strong demand for, for bridging these two types of models. And there's a lot of ongoing research already that, that tries to do so, but it'll, it'll take some time. Now, in the meantime, what we concluded in the work stream was that satellite approaches may be a good starting point where climate-related scenarios we can obtain from such integrated assessment models would be used as inputs in more advanced structural models of the economy, which may then also take into account, for example, sectoral interdependencies, which may be important. Another approach that we discussed is to use existing structural and semi-structural models and feed them with paths of macroeconomic shocks that are designed to mimic certain climate scenarios that we obtain from these integrated assessment models. So there's basically different ways to, to get started now, but ultimately we really need to bridge the gap between these two types of models that climate economists and central bank economists have been using over the past years. To what degree does the new area-wide model, the NAWM model that the ECB paper alludes to, can you talk about that? To what degree does that reveal how climate change could minimize the effects of a monetary policy? You know, yeah, I mean, the new area-wide model was not designed to feature climate change. Yet in the work stream, colleagues from the ECB and other central banks used it to study the implications of climate change for monetary policy under different climate scenarios. And this was done in, in the way I just outlined before. You use this structural or semi-structural model and you feed it with paths of macroeconomic shocks that are designed to mimic certain climate scenarios. Doing so, the main finding was that Standard demand shocks, which central banks try to accommodate by easing policy, are likely to have a larger and more persistent impact on the economy, on inflation and the output gap, under scenarios where monetary policy space, and also fiscal space, by the way, are constrained by climate change. So the simulations show that when the size, the frequency, and the persistence of certain supply and demand shocks increase due to climate change, and it will be much more difficult for the central bank to stabilize inflation. And that's especially true, coming back to a discussion we had earlier, if the natural rate of interest is also pushed down by climate change. So basically, while these models haven't been designed yet to feature climate change, we can really use them to study monetary policy in the future in scenarios under which climate change affects uh, certain shock profiles, but also certain variables that are important for monetary policy, such as the natural rate of interest. The second gap that I'd like to address coming out of the ECB paper is 
the obvious question, which is around data. So where, with your central banker hat on, where are the data gaps and how do you think we close them? There are a lot of data gaps to fill. It's true that um, historical climate data is available um, um, relatively easily, but as we discussed earlier, these only tell us so much about future realizations of physical risks that may be arising from climate change in the future. And that's why we use scenario analysis and climate modeling in understanding climate scenarios may affect monetary policy in the future. We also discussed earlier that monetary policy typically operates at business cycle frequencies for which transition risks are, are key. And so what's really crucial is to properly measure these transition risks. And for that, we need detailed, granular data on the carbon exposures of firms, sectors, countries. These are being increasingly collected, but you know, and I think you've discussed this also in prior issues of your, your podcast, the quality of those data is often not clear. The results differ across data vendors. Much of the available data is imputed using a variety of sources and models. And so really that's a data gap that needs to be filled, not just for central bank purposes, but also for other purposes. In addition, I think there's definitional and methodological issues that we need to deal with, which are associated with climate change. And that's really a question of disclosures. And I think these disclosure issues that are open, they need to be solved very quickly so that we as central bankers can improve our understanding of the transition risks and how they impact financial markets, individual firms, and monetary policy. And of course, rating agencies play a key role in this context. And I think we also need to improve our understanding of what these agencies do to incorporate climate change into their ratings and need to have discussions with them about how, how this is done, uh, as we also rely on ratings very much, for example, in our collateral framework. But central banks can also contribute to filling these gaps on exposures. How can they do so? Well, I mentioned earlier the disclosure requirements that central banks can impose on issuers of financial assets, which the central banks accept as collateral or that they even purchase in the marketplace in, in asset purchase programs. So central banks themselves may actually play a crucial catalytic role for the improved climate-related disclosures. And I think they understand this well now. Last question, and this is particularly, I, I've got an interest in this, but given that you've done a good deal of academic research around risk premia, I'm wondering because th this is an issue or a topic that continues to come up in a great podcast with Cam Harvey in a most recent one with Abraham Louis, obviously both academics. And I'm kind of wondering your views around the existence of this risk premia. It feels much easier to define in a green context talk about greeniums, particularly around sort of spreads in the green bond market relative to non-green bonds. How do you think about this? The reason I ask this is that I often find that what's purported to be an ESG premia or a climate premia is often little more than other common risk factors sort of amalgamated into some sloppy factor. You know, that's a great question. And um, as an economist interested in asset pricing, I am very interested in this question, although I haven't really worked on it myself yet. But conceptually, I mean, to the extent that physical and transition risks that emanate from climate change represent undiversifiable sources of risk for investors, you know, there should be a premium for bearing such risks. But of course, there may also be potential positive returns for certain firms or industries that may benefit from climate change or, or the net zero transition. So yes, I think conceptually, these premia should exist and they can be either positive. So investors requiring a premium to bear these risks, or they can be negative investors willing to pay a premium to hold assets that will likely do well in certain future states of the world. 
And I guess it boils down to measuring these risks properly. And that's challenging as these risks are clearly multifaceted. They involve physical risks as well as transition risks. Physical and transition risks are themselves multifaceted. There's very different types of such risks. And so I think it's unlikely that you can really summarize all of these risks in, in one simple factor. Maybe the carbon exposure of a firm's revenues is a good starting point, but it's certainly not the only factor I would think conceptually that would measure climate risk. Some exposures uh, to climate risks, physical and transition, are probably relatively well captured by other commonly used risk factors, such as quality and size. But without really being an expert in this field, I would doubt that these will be enough to really span the different dimensions of climate risks. And so I think clearly more research is needed to come up with risk factors that are good proxies for climate risks. And some of this recent work you have covered in past issues of your podcast, but I think there's really a lot more to be done on this this important field. So it's such an exciting area. So it's been fascinating to discuss how to think about the intersection of climate change and monetary policy what central banks are doing to integrate climate risk into their macroeconomic models, and why it's vital we continue to examine how climate change may impact the financial system. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Emmanuel Munch, head of research at Deutsche Bundesbank. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me and for this very interesting discussion. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.